Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. When you start a new relationship, having great sex often comes pretty naturally and easily. When we're in the initial phase of passion, the attraction is intense and you often can't keep your hands off of each other. The sex is new and exciting. But over time, passion tends to wear down a bit. That's totally normal, and it's not a sign that there's anything inherently wrong with you, your partner, or your relationship. But a lot of people interpret it as a problem, or they start to long for that intense connection again. So how can you get the passion back and keep it going over time? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to explore predictors of sexual satisfaction in both different sex and same-sex relationships. We're going to discuss how the factors that lead to sexual satisfaction are similar or different for heterosexual and LGBTQ folks, as well as what lesbians can teach heterosexuals about closing the orgasm gap. We're also going to dispel some popular myths and misconceptions about sex. I am joined by Dr. David Frederick, an associate professor of health psychology at Chapman University in Southern California and visiting associate professor of psychology at UCLA in the summers. Dr. Frederick has taught over 70 courses, including human sexuality, as well as the psychology of gender and sexual orientation. He has published nearly 75 scientific papers, and his research explores how social and biological factors shape sexuality, among other things. This is going to be a wonderful and very informative conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been investigating issues of sex, gender, and relationships for 75 years. To commemorate the Institute's 75th anniversary, they will be hosting events all throughout the year, including art exhibitions, research lectures, a book club, dance performances, and much more. Visit their website at kinseyinstitute.org or follow them on social media for the latest details. You can follow them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Kinsey Institute. Hi, David, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. And it's fun to flip the tables because now I get to hear you speak. I've done a lot of guest lectures in your courses, but now it's your turn to do a little bit of the talking. Yes, it's definitely always a highlight for my students when you come and share your research on fantasies and talk about your book. It's a big highlight for them to get to see the author on Zoom and have that experience. Well, I love doing it. So to begin our conversation, I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about how you became a sexuality educator and researcher. So specifically, what is it that drew you to this area? Well, my original dream was to chase monkeys around Africa. I was a animal behavior major and I was working in a lab that had studied chimpanzee cognition, but they didn't have any chimps anymore. So they had switched to hormones and sexual behavior. So I started doing research on hormones and sexual behavior and shifts in women's desires across the ovulatory cycle. And at the same time, I had a mentor and undergrad who worked with eating disorder patients but he was one of the few people who was working with male eating disorder patients. And so that got me interested in body image and how that might impact men and their sexual experiences. So from that background as an undergrad, shaped the way that I approached research and the topics I studied in graduate school and had the opportunity to conduct lots of research related to those topics. And then 
had an opportunity to partner with some of the, the large corporations like msnbc.com, Elle Magazine, that would fund studies to examine these topics. And that really was kind of my big break in terms of being able to look across sexual orientation, gender, ethnicity, people from all different backgrounds, because we had such huge samples through these large studies that were conducted by these corporations. Yeah, I love that. And that's one of the things that's really unique about your research is that it's not just based on college student undergraduate research pools, because so much of our knowledge of human sexuality is limited to that very specific population, and they're not representative of the overall population. So I love that you have these big, very diverse samples, and so you can speak to sexuality across different segments of the population. So we're going to talk about sexual satisfaction today and what predicts being more versus less satisfied in a relationship. But before we get into these specific predictors, let me ask a general question first, which is how sexual satisfaction usually changes over time in a relationship. And I ask this because on the one hand, some people might assume that it declines because it's hard to keep those initial feelings of passion alive. But on the other hand, some people might think that it goes up because the longer you've known someone, the better your sexual communication should be and the more you should know what your partner wants. So what actually happens to sexual satisfaction over time in a relationship? Well, during those first six months, the first year of a relationship, most couples, they're like little bunnies. They're getting it on all the time. So the average in our samples for how often people have sex in a new relationship is about once every other day, about 14 times per month. Um, and that stays pretty high through the first year. But then it does start to really sharply decline. So by the time you've gotten to three to five years in a relationship, they're having sex like eight times a month. And then after six to 10 years, it's more like once a week. So there's a really dramatic decline in sexual frequency. And you see that same decline across sexual satisfaction. So couples, on average, start out really satisfied that first year. So they're like six out of seven on a satisfaction scale. And that stays pretty high for the first year, dips a little bit through until the third year. And then once you hit the third year, it really starts to drop. And in our samples, just the slightly above neutral is the average sexual satisfaction for couples who have been together for six years or longer. So you see this really dramatic drop in sexual satisfaction, sexual frequency, which can have a meaningful impact on relationships. And that's really what we wanted to study. And we wanted to figure out, all right, for these couples who have been in a relationship for a really long time, what are these sexually satisfied couples doing differently than the dissatisfied couples? So when you said early on in the relationship, satisfaction is like at a six or a seven on the scale, is that a seven point scale? So they're at the very top of it, they're really happy, and then it just starts to come down from there? Yeah, so in our samples, seven is very satisfied. And so the average sexual satisfaction is about a six early on in the relationship. And then it systematically declines, really starting dramatically around year three. So you've done research, as you mentioned, on what it is that makes couples who stay sexually satisfied in their relationship satisfied. So, and you've done this across persons of different genders and different sexualities, but let's start first by talking about predictors of sexual satisfaction in heterosexual men and women, and then later we'll come back to how things compare for LGBTQ adults. 
Now, you have this very large data set with tens of thousands of responses looking at sexual satisfaction in relationships. And one of the key things you find is that the really sexually satisfied folks engage in more acts of sexual novelty and variety. So what are some of the key things that they're trying that seem to bolster or reinvigorate sexual satisfaction? What are they doing differently? So we asked a lot of questions about what people are doing in their sex life, what specific acts, what specific behaviors, what things they're sharing and how they're communicating with their partner. And one of the things that really seemed to matter was how much sexual variety they were integrating into their sex life. So we had 17 different acts that people could tell us if they had done it in the past year and if they had done it more than once. So things like having a date night with your partner, wearing lingerie, one of you getting a massage, using a vibrator, trying a new sex position, trying anal stimulation, viewing pornography together. So lots of different acts that they could have engaged in. And so what we found is generally speaking, the more of those acts that they incorporated into their sex life, the more satisfied they were. So we had 17 acts. Now, once you've got to like 9, 10, 11, 12 of those acts, adding more of them in wasn't associated with really that much more sexual satisfaction. But you definitely see a drop off. So if people who are only doing one or two or three of those things in the last year with their partner, they're even below neutral on sexual satisfaction. So there's always a problem of knowing, you know, which is causing which, which is coming first. It's always the case that these are bi-directional relationships. So the more you engage in sexual variety with your partner, you typically are more satisfied. And then the more satisfied you are with your partner, the more you want to try new things. And it becomes this positive cycle once it gets off the ground. That totally makes sense. And I think that's true for so many things when it comes to sex is that, you know, yes, these things are predictors of sexual satisfaction, but sexual satisfaction also predicts engaging in those behaviors. So I think that's a really important point to make. And you've already anticipated my next question, which was going to be, you know, is there a point where you get to diminishing returns with all of this? So if you just keep adding more and more and more novelty, does that sort of max out your sexual satisfaction at some point? And it seems like it does. And and it also seems to be the case that there's kind of like a minimum number of new things that you kind of need to try to really tap into those benefits. So yes, novelty seems to be good to an extent, but more is not necessarily always better because it seems to reach some limit, right? Exactly. And I think it's also helpful to think about what are the specific acts of sexual variety that will enhance people's sex lives. So we took all the sexually satisfied couples in the relationship and we took all of the sexually dissatisfied couples in the sample and we looked at, well, which behaviors really differentiate the, the two groups? So the satisfied individuals were much more likely to have tried a new sex position in the past year with their partner. They did that much more often than the dissatisfied couples did. They were more likely to wear lingerie. They were more likely to go on a date night. They were more likely to give or receive a massage. And they were more likely to view pornography together. So those were, you know, we have all these different acts of sexual variety, but those were the five that best differentiated the satisfied couples from the dissatisfied couples. So if you're making a checklist during this podcast of what you might want to try at home with your partner, those are the five that really left out as being particularly associated with sexual satisfaction. So it sounds like you don't have to get 
like super wild and crazy in terms of what you do in order to tap into these benefits. You know, something as simple as just trying a new sexual position can be enough in terms of adding that novelty or newness to sex. And it's going to add something important in a couple of different ways. One is that, for example, when you try a different position, you're going to get different physical sensations from that position. It can also change the power dynamic depending on the way that you're facing with your partner. And so there can be that sort of psychological excitement that comes along with it as well. And you might also find that maybe it's more physically comfortable to be in some positions than others because some tend to put more stress on the body. So, you know, just something as small as trying a new position can be a great easy way of adding a lot of novelty. You don't need to necessarily buy any props or anything like that. So I think, you know, when we talk about novelty, people's minds often go to, you know, we have to get the whips and chains and we have to do something that, you know, really sounds different from what we're used to doing. But, you know, novelty can be this very incremental thing where you're just sort of stepping outside of the box just a little bit. Yeah. And I think, yeah, some people do want to get wild and crazy and that's great there's entire stores that cater to that but just trying out some slight new things talking with your partners about their fantasies and seeing how you might whip in some of that variety into your relationship at least with our samples that shows some positive benefit and that's not true just in the bedroom but there are other studies that have participants do novel activities with their partner like going through an obstacle course with each other and that will help heighten their overall relationship satisfaction. So there's a lot of benefits to trying new things with your partner and having those shared experiences, not just to experience physical pleasure, but to build intimacy and build some excitement about what might happen next. Wait, now that obstacle course you mentioned, was that a sexual obstacle course or was that just <laughs> in general? Because my mind went to sexual obstacle and I'm like, ooh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, that's the kind of studies that would be hard to get by an IRB. So this had to, the obstacle course was having people like move a ball across a field and then like, you know, the, the kind of obstacle courses that you do on field days in, in school where you'd have little competitions with each other. So let's talk about some other factors that predict sexual satisfaction. So something else that you found in your research is that people who take time to set the mood tend to be more sexually satisfied. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the things people do to establish a sexual mood? And also, why is mood setting in general important for having better sex? I think mood setting is one of those things that are important in a lot of people's relationships and sex lives, but not something that researchers had really focused on or brought a lot of attention to. So that was one reason that we really wanted to think about not just the acts that people are engaging in during sex, but what are the things they're doing around the context of sex to make it a more arousing and pleasurable and exciting experience. So we asked participants, thinking about when you have sex, do you light a candle or dim the lights? Do you play music in the background? Do you engage in sexy talk? Do you laugh about something funny that happened during sex? Do you say, I love you to your partner? So these different ways of setting the mood, what we find is that the satisfied couples are doing those sorts of things much more frequently than the dissatisfied couples. And in terms of what things are most linked to sexual satisfaction, the satisfied couples were much more likely to be saying, I love you during sex. So 75% of satisfied couples said, I love you the last time they had sex compared to half of the dissatisfied couples. And you see the same thing over and over again. The satisfied couples are engaging in more sexy talk. They're laughing more during sex. They're dimming the lights or doing a candle or putting on music. 
And so these different behaviors that can help sort of enhance the sensation, help people feel more comfortable, help people feel more intimate are promoting sexual satisfaction for some people. And so when you mentioned setting the mood and you describe these different activities, you know, I think initially when people hear mood setting, their mind goes to candles and, you know, aromatherapy and dim lights and that it's more about sort of the physical environment that you're cultivating. But when you mention things like laughing about something funny that happened or saying, I love you, you know, that's part of mood setting as well, but it's creating the mood in a different way. You know, it can make it relaxed or it can make it more romantic or emotional or intimate. So I guess when you're talking about setting the mood, it's kind of you can think outside of the box there a bit. It's not just about what you physically do to make the room look or feel a certain way. It's also about that dynamic that you're establishing with your partner as well. So tell us a little bit more about mood setting. And so why is that so important? Yeah, so some aspects of mood setting are really about like, how can we like energize this? How can we create some more passion and excitement in this experience? But other types of mood setting are more kind of about being erotic, being intimate, bringing closeness and comfort to each other. And then, you know, there are people who differ in what we call sociosexuality. So basically how much you think emotion is a really important part of sex versus you're fine having sex with a lot of people without much emotional attachment. And because for some people, emotion is a really important part of sex, feeling of love is a really important part of sex, having reaffirmations of that can make it a more intimate and comfortable experience for people where that's really important, especially with a partner who you are in love with. And then some of the aspects of setting the mood are just about comfort. You know, sometimes it's going to be intense, but sometimes it can be relaxed and comfortable or funny things happen. And the ability to kind of keep yourself in that relaxed and this is a fun activity. This is something fun that we're sharing together and just laughing if, if something silly happens during sex. Like those types of things can build intimacy and bonding during sex as well. Yeah. So it's about sort of creating the right environment or atmosphere physically and psychologically that allows you to be in the moment and to really enjoy that experience or sometimes to heighten those experiences because we know sex is this multi-sensory thing you know it's not just about the physical sensations that come from touching your partner's body it's about so much more than that now one question about sort of the mood setting behaviors and the sexual variety behaviors that you asked about you had these checklists of behaviors and i'm just curious how you came up with these specific behaviors to ask about. Uh, and I ask this because, you know, there are all different kinds of things people might be doing sexually or different ways they might be setting the mood. And so what was your inspiration in terms of why you asked about these specific types of things? So the inspiration came from a lot of places because there are now a bunch of more studies that look at really specific acts of sexual variety, but there wasn't really at the time that we created the survey. So we were bringing from our own experiences, we we're bringing from conversations that we've had. So one of the co-authors on the paper, Janet Lever, had a sex advice column for many years and also a show on the Playboy channel. So she had lots of experiences. There's the book, The Great Sex Weekend, which led to a question about having a romantic getaway. So we were really trying to think of like, what is it that stereotypically people might commonly 
do to boost the variety in the relationship. And then we also pick some things that are relatively less common, but might be important for some couples. So for example, engaging in some BDSM type behaviors, inviting another person, doing videotaping, which videotapes don't exist anymore, but video recording your sexual acts and taking photos. So we were trying to like make sure we get a diversity of behaviors and also ones that we think would be things that a lot of people might be engaging in so that we can really capture those and see how they're linked to sexual satisfaction. Makes sense. And I think it also points to the fact that researchers are always going to need to continually update these checklists and the way that we ask about sex, because sexual expression itself is something that is constantly changing and evolving. So we've been talking about your research on heterosexual men and women, but what about LGBTQ adults? Are the factors that predict sexual satisfaction the same for heterosexual and non-heterosexual persons, or do they differ to some extent? So the first thing I'll say is there are a lot of similarities. So looking at everything that we had in our data set, the things that best predicted sexual satisfaction for for heterosexual women were how often they orgasmed, how many of those mood setting behaviors they engaged in, how many different types of communication strategies they used with their partner, and how much sexual variety they incorporated into their sex lives. For men, Similar things were strong predictors of sexual satisfaction, mood setting, communication. Sexual variety was a little bit more important for men than for women. And then when we look at the lesbian women and the gay men, a lot of these things are really similar. So what we needed to do, though, is whenever you compare gay men to heterosexual men or lesbian women to heterosexual women can be really difficult to do because with your typical sample, you don't get enough lesbian women or gay men to do a meaningful comparison to the heterosexual samples. So that leads people to use listservs or go to like Facebook or Instagram or contact political activist groups. And what happens is then you get a fairly large sample of gay men and lesbian women, but they're recruited from a biased source. And so they might differ from the heterosexual participants in important ways like age or political activism that might link to sexual behavior. So it becomes harder to compare them. So since we had such a big sample, we were able to do some really careful controls and really carefully match the lesbian women to the heterosexual women. So find if there's a lesbian woman in the sample who's 30 years old with three kids and has been in a relationship for five years, we can find 20 heterosexual women who match them in that way. So then when we're comparing the two, we can be really confident that the main thing driving the difference between the two is the sexual orientation, not some third variable, like how long they've been in a relationship. So Focusing first on the lesbian women, there are a lot of things that were really similar to the heterosexual women. So the things that predicted sexual satisfaction, overall sexual satisfaction, sexual passion, how often they gave oral sex, uh, number of acts of sexual variety, communication, relationship satisfaction. I mean, there's a lot of similarities and it's important, I think, first to note that and think about that before we start talking about the differences. There's some differences that heterosexual women are engaging in sex notably more frequently on average than the lesbian women, right? So there's variability in each group. There's some lesbian women who have sex very frequently, some who have it very infrequently, same for heterosexual women. But on average, the heterosexual women were having sex about nine times a month versus six times per month with the lesbian women. 
The other thing that was a really notable difference is that the lesbian women were orgasming at a much more frequent rate than the heterosexual women. So if the heterosexual men and the gay men, you know, over 90% of them were saying they usually always orgasm with their partner during sex, the heterosexual women, only 68% of them say they usually or always orgasm during sex with their partner. That's compared to 85% of the lesbian women. So there's a big orgasm gap there between the lesbian women and the heterosexual women. And here, I think this is one time we're looking at what are the lesbian women doing differently with their partner might be informative about why the heterosexual women are orgasming less often. And for the heterosexual women who want to increase their orgasm frequency, what some of the behaviors are that they might engage in more frequently. So one of the notable differences between the lesbian women and the heterosexual women is the lesbian women were receiving oral sex more frequently than the heterosexual women were. And that was one of the strongest predictors of orgasm frequency. So how often you receive oral sex as a woman was a strong predictor of how often you orgasmed. But the lesbian women were much more likely to be receiving it routinely. And then there are some other behaviors that differed in frequency, not by a huge degree, but by a notable degree. And when you add them all up, it helps to explain why the lesbian women are orgasming more often than the heterosexual women. So the lesbian women during their last sexual encounter were more likely to engage in manual stimulation of the genitals, were more likely to have gentle kissing, were more likely to have deep kissing, more likely to receive oral sex. And all of those behaviors are linked to more frequent orgasm. So when we look at the heterosexual women and we look at what behaviors they're engaging in with their partners and their orgasm frequency, if they're only receiving vaginal intercourse with their partner, and that's the only thing that happens during their last sexual event, those women aren't typically orgasming very frequently with their partner. Basically, 35% of them say they usually always orgasm with their partner with just vaginal intercourse alone. But when those women are receiving vaginal intercourse and oral sex and manual stimulation of the genitals and deep kissing, then the gap closes and the heterosexual women look a lot more like the lesbian women in terms of the frequency of orgasm. So it sounds like the variety of behaviors that lesbians engage in is part of what is linked to more consistent experiences with orgasms and especially that element of receiving oral sex, right? Because we know that that often isn't present in heterosexual relationships or it's not reciprocated to the same degree in a heterosexual context as it is in, say, a female same-sex context. So I think this research is really important for demonstrating the idea that the orgasm gap doesn't have to exist. You know, women can orgasm at rates that are very similar to men during partnered sex. But what explains the orgasm gap seems to be differences in the types of sexual behaviors that are occurring in a heterosexual context versus a female same-sex context, right? So I think there are certain behaviors that seem to definitely reduce the size of the orgasm gap. There are other things that come into play here that make it more complex. So for example, the heterosexual couples are more likely to have quickies than the lesbian women. So a sex experience that lasts less than 15 minutes. And there might be heterosexual couples that just sometimes the guy is very sexually aroused and they have kind of a quickie to satiate him and that you know becomes then part of the orgasm gap. Right. So with the men orgasming more often than the women. So there's a lot of like complex things that go into this. 
But the, the general idea is, yeah, the more of these behaviors that you're engaging in, the more foreplay, the much more likely that the heterosexual women are to orgasm. In fact, when I present this finding in class, I have a little graph that shows what happens as each behavior gets integrated into the sexual experience with vaginal intercourse, plus oral sex, plus deep kissing, plus manual stimulation, and that with that combination of the last four being the highest orgasm frequency. And I've just had female students sometimes just take out their phone and snap a photo <laughs> of that slide. I presume to share it with their boyfriends or with their partners or with just people in general. But it's not often that a student like whips out a phone to take a picture of a slide. And it keeps happening with this one. So I think that it's, a, it's an important information to share. Makes total sense to me. Now, that kind of leads into my next question, because you mentioned time spent on sex and how often in heterosexual couples, they spend less time on sex, especially compared to, say, lesbian couples. Now, there's this popular idea sometimes referred to as lesbian bed death, which is often described as the disappearance of sex in female same-sex relationships because there isn't a man around to initiate. And of course, that idea is problematic on so many levels. But in your research and in the research of others, yes, you do see that lesbians have sex less often than heterosexual persons and gay men on average. But when they do have sex, they typically spend a lot more time on it. So can you tell us a little bit about what you describe in your work as lesbian bed intimacies and how that helps to explain why lesbian and heterosexual women seem to have these pretty similar levels of sexual satisfaction, despite the fact that heterosexual women tend to be doing it more often on average? Yeah, so there's this phrase that was coined called lesbian bed death, which is rather extreme label for an average difference in frequency of sex between lesbian women and heterosexual women. And one thing that was interesting to us is that lesbian women were having sex on average less often than the heterosexual women, but they were equally sexually satisfied. So that led us to ask the question, all right, we know that sex frequency is an important predictor of sexual satisfaction in heterosexual women and in lesbian women. So what is what are the lesbian women experiencing or, or what are they doing that helps maintain that high level of sexual satisfaction comparable to the heterosexual women? So some of them we've already talked about, like the specific behaviors that they're engaging in more. Another difference that comes out is that when you ask them about their last sexual event, the lesbian women were spending more time on the sexual experience than the heterosexual women were. So counting everything that happened during their last sexual experience, 77% of the lesbian women said the encounter lasted 30 minutes or more compared to only half of the heterosexual men. And at the other extreme, in terms of something that lasted 15 minutes or less, the heterosexual women were twice as likely, uh, 16% versus 8%, to say that their last sexual experience was 15 minutes or less. So that is another predictor of sexual satisfaction, how long your last sexual experience lasted. There are a couple of the mood behaviors, like saying I love you during sex, the lesbian women were more likely to engage in. So when you add up all these different things, it's helping to explain why there's an equal sexual satisfaction between the groups, even though there's a difference in overall frequency, there's also a difference in mood setting communication, and how long sex is lasting in specific behaviors. And on the flip side, what we do find in our study, so there's a controversy about whether or not there's an average difference between men and women in sex drive. And I think 
most people would agree that at least one difference is men are more likely to experience spontaneous sexual arousal than women are. So you're just kind of sitting around and all of a sudden you get aroused or you see someone attractive and you get aroused and that that happens more frequently for men than for women. So what we find in our study is that men are much more likely to say that they have a stronger sex drive than their partner does. And the women in our sample, the heterosexual women in our sample also say, or, yeah, my partner has a stronger sex drive than I do. And that discrepancy creates some additional pressure on heterosexual women on average, because then they might sometimes be having sex when they're not as aroused or they're not as interested. So we have we, we can think of the lesbian bed death as lesbian women on average are having sex less often. But on the other hand, that might mean that heterosexual women are sometimes engaging in what Dr. Emily and Pet calls sexual sacrificing, which is sometimes they're having sex even though they're really not in the mood. So again, there's a lot of complex things that go in here. But really what we're focused on is regardless of sexual orientation, what behaviors can you engage in that really promote sexual satisfaction that are really systematically, routinely linked to sexual satisfaction that are often effective for most people. And I appreciate you pointing out all the complexities there. And I think, you know, we've really only scratched the surface. You know, if you also consider, for example, in a heterosexual context, something like unwanted or unintended pregnancy is going to be a concern there for heterosexual sex, but not for female same-sex partners who are engaging. And so that could create some other anxiety or other factors that might impact the sexual experience. So there's all kinds of things that differ here that could be contributing to to some of the other differences that we've been talking about. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about male same-sex couples and, you know, how things differ in terms of sexual satisfaction for men of different sexual orientations. And one of the things that stood out to me from your research was that when you ask people what they did the most recent time they had sex, almost all of the heterosexual men said that penetrative intercourse took place, whereas the number for gay men was quite a bit lower at 60%, which I think points to the idea that sexual minorities might be defining sex a little differently differently than heterosexual persons. So can you tell us what are some other differences that emerge when you're talking about sexual satisfaction or experiences for heterosexual versus non-heterosexual men? Yeah. So again, like with the women, with the lesbian women versus heterosexual women, I want to first point out there's a tremendous number of similarities. So things that predict sexual satisfaction are most often similar for gay men and for heterosexual men. So things like orgasm frequency, frequency of giving oral sex, sexual variety, communication, mood setting. These things are roughly equally predictive of sexual satisfaction for gay men and for heterosexual men. But there are some differences. So in terms of receiving oral sex, gay men are receiving oral sex more frequently than heterosexual men are. And then the flip side of that Gay men are giving oral sex more often than the heterosexual men are. The rest of the differences in terms of how often certain acts are being engaged in, they exist, but they're actually pretty small. So like the gay men on average did seven acts of sexual variety with their partner, whereas the heterosexual men did six acts. The gay men were having sex seven times per month and the heterosexual men were having sex eight times per month. So, you know, there's there's a lot of similarities there. There's a couple differences we did notice. So gay men were more likely to have had a threesome than heterosexual men were. 
They are more likely to have had anal sex. They are more likely to engage in role play and to watch porn with their partner. And they were less likely to give their partner a massage, the heterosexual participant. So there are some differences there, but they, they tend to be relatively minor. One thing that we did find, and I don't know if necessarily have a great explanation for it, so I'll put it out there to you and to the world, but we did find that how many types of sexual communication they engaged in was a stronger predictor of sexual satisfaction for gay men than for heterosexual men. So that's one of the differences that we didn't necessarily predict ahead of time, but was notable and standing out in the results. I appreciate you sharing all of this. And, you know, it sounds like, yes, there are some differences based on sexual orientation, but so many more similarities in terms of what makes for satisfying sex and what increases the likelihood of orgasm and so forth. So in terms of just sort of general advice for people in terms of what they can do, no matter who they are or what type of relationship they're in, it seems that engaging in more acts of novelty. So just trying new and different things occasionally is a very important part of keeping passion alive in a relationship. But it's also in the context of any given sexual encounter, not just doing one thing. You know, it's that sort of mixing it up and trying multiple things at the same time where you've got the kissing and the oral sex and maybe penetrative intercourse. You know, it kind of depends. It doesn't have to look the same every time. And I think that's one of the other keys to great sex is having that flexible and adaptable mindset where sex can be anything you want it to be in that particular moment. And it's also taking time to set the mood and the right scene that you want for sex in that moment. And that scene is established through the words that you convey to your partner and also through anything you do to create a certain ambiance in that room or wherever it is that you're having sex. So anything else that you would add to that in terms of other keys for kind of keeping the passion alive in a relationship? I mean, I think it's important to note, not just for sexual satisfaction, but for passion in general, there's long been this pattern of starts out really intense where, you know, there's that uncertainty in the beginning. So it's like really arousing. You're like texting and you're like, you know, we're flirting and I think she likes me and like, oh, I don't know she hasn't responded in 20 minutes. Maybe she doesn't like me. Oh, this was foolish. What was I thinking? Oh, wait, she just texted. This is super exciting. She is interested, right? So, you know, some of that arousal, some of that uncertainty goes away over time as things become more predictable, as the rewards from the relationship become more predictable. And we know from lots of different types of studies on rewards that when things become more predictable, they become, we get less of a, a feeling, a rush of reward from it. And so over time, that's one of the reasons that feelings of passion start to decline as you become kind of habituated and the rewards become more predictable. And so those are why some of these things, just adding or trying new things to the relationship can spark up some of that unpredictability, you know, increase that rush of reward. Not every moment needs to be passionate like the first year was, but having the opportunity to kind of try out some things that if that's something you're looking for, that you can see these kind of like spikes and oscillations uh, of passion as you integrate more of that novelty into your relationship. And I guess the other thing that I would say is in terms of closing the orgasm gap, I think I might have mentioned that the strongest predictor for women of orgasm frequency was how often they received oral sex. And even though that was the strongest predictor of orgasm frequency, it wasn't a particularly common behavior. Less than half of the women were saying that they were usually or always receiving 
oral sex during when they were sexually intimate in the past month. Now, the men said the same, you know, there wasn't actually a big difference in how often the men were receiving oral sex as well. But, you know, just given the important role that it plays, I think that that's important to, to note for people to consider trying or integrating more into their sex life. And the other thing that I didn't mention before was that lesbian women were more likely to integrate sex toys and vibrators into their sex life. And that's another source of novelty that might help close some of the orgasm gap for people who are trying to do so. I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I also really like what you mentioned about uncertainty. You know, you can sort of think of how slot machines work and why they're so enticing in Las Vegas. And it's because they're on what we call this variable reinforcement schedule where you get these inconsistent payouts and sometimes you hit the jackpot and it's amazing and, (laughs) you know, you do really well, but other times it doesn't work out as well. And that's part of the way that you can think of adding novelty into your relationship is it adds that sense of mystery. Sometimes you're going to get those big payoffs, the jackpots where you have that super intense orgasm and this amazing experience. Other times you're going to try something new and it's not going to go so well. Maybe you're not going to like it. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't have done it or that it was a bad thing, just that you learned something and, you know, maybe next time you're going to try something different than that. So thank you for sharing all of these great, very helpful, practical tips. And I think you just had a great business idea there, which is a sexual slot machine where you just put it into the bedroom, pull the lever and whatever it comes up, that's what uh, you do that day. And that's your jackpot reward. Sexy slots. I love it. So thank you so much for this great conversation, David. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yes. If you Google David Frederick Psychology, my official website and my own personal website will come up. So David Frederick Psychology, throw that into Google and it'll come up. And you can also do David Frederick Google Scholar, and it'll bring up all of my research articles as well. I don't have the the fancy Instagram, Twitter lifestyle that some of my colleagues do, but uh, all of my research papers and, and other types of information are available there for anyone who is interested. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 